0: Hi and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sonia Thomas. I'm Sarah Jordan.
1: And I'm Gavin Cooper.
0: This is the final episode in the series. Today we're going to talk about the transforming end-of-life care team that's been working at UCLH embedded within the lymphoma service. Welcome back Will, one of our lymphoma consultants to the pod. Thanks for having me back. And today we've got the transforming end-of-life care team. So We've got Lena and we've got Gihan. So welcome. And we're going to talk a little bit about um, transforming end-of-life care. Do you want to first maybe start off by telling us a little bit about your team and what
2: you do? So our team was primarily educational when we started. And what we want to really achieve is to try and improve end-of-life care across the Trust. It's a big undertaking. But we soon found that just being educational wasn't really working as well. So we we decided to do a little bit of clinical work. So we have been doing quite a lot of that and I think uh, in a way because we're all doctors and nurses we really like the patient interaction and we missed it quite a bit. So it's nice to be able to do a lot of education around the trust but also supporting clinical teams and actually seeing patients face to face. So what we do is we'll talk a little bit about our framework But we do quite a lot of teaching, face-to-face training and support on the wards. So we go and see everyone that is dying on the wards as well. And that helps us focus and give a bit of support to families and patients, but also um, nurses and doctors on the wards, a little bit of symptom control and support for them. And Lina, what's your background? So I'm an oncology nurse here at UCLH for a few years. I won't reveal how many.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So um, I'm Johan. So my background is that I'm a medical oncology registrar, but I've taken some time out of my training. So I've been doing three years out uh, in another um, at a university doing a PhD, and I've had the chance to take an extra year out to work with the Transforming End of Life Care team because it's pretty much an extension of the work that I was doing with my research. And I gather your team has interacted with different divisions within the trust looking to sort of change end-of-life care and is there like a, a common approach you bring when you go to work in a new area? Yeah absolutely, so, so we are essentially a quality improvement team um, and so what we try to do is, as Lena has already said, we work across the trust but we try to identify certain departments where we can focus on and we try to do that for about a year or so um, and most recently we thought it would be good to focus on haematology and oncology um, and considering our backgrounds as well, it was quite a nice fit. So when we go into a department, we have a bit of a, what we call the transform framework, um, which is four different parts. Um, so the first is we recognizing someone who's dying is notoriously difficult, and it's really, really difficult, we found, in hematological patients who've got cancers. It's very different to patients who've got what we call solid cancers. The next is then, once you've recognized that, how do you then translate that to the patient, the rest of the team that's looking after them, so we really promote compassionate conversations. Sometimes that can be really, really difficult, often it involves breaking bad news, often it involves talking about difficult subjects such as resuscitation or end-of-life care and so we do a lot of support around that and trying to, um, to help the different teams. The third part is how do you then put that into practice So at UCRH, we have ways of how we can record patients' wishes on EPIC, but also there's other platforms that we can use as well. Um, So we do a lot of teaching about how to do all of that. And then finally, we collaborate um, really closely with the different teams within the hospital, but also the community teams. So the community palliative care teams, the GP surgeries, district nurses, all of them. Um, And one of the platforms that we use out there is Coordinate My Care.
0: So is Coordinate My Care, is that advanced care planning?
1: Yeah, so it's an advanced care planning platform. It's local to London or Greater London. And the thing that's different to other uh, care planning platforms is that it's digital. And it means that the clinician can fill it out, obviously with the permission of the patient, and usually in collaboration with the patient and their family members as well. And then once it's on the system, anybody who then gets a phone call regarding that patient, so if it's like a 111 call, or if it goes to the London Ambulance Service, then that will pop up with a little flag saying that they've got to Coordinate My Care record. And so they
3: actually get to see all the information that's already been recorded about that person. And that's linked through to the general practices and out-of-hours GPs as well? Yes. Which is really valuable for that whole coordination between hospital care and primary care, isn't it? Absolutely.
0: And are those types of records only initiated when we know that a patient is dying or has got a limited amount of time left? Is that when we initiate
2: something like that? It doesn't have to be. All of us could fill one in our, our own CMCs if we wanted to. When I think when we're ready to kind of have some preferences jotted down. So it has um, an urgent care plan. If someone does have a diagnosis that they know that it's the, that is terminal, they can put down a few things that might happen to them, like breathlessness or major hemorrhage. There are a few th- things that you can jot down so that everyone is expecting and know uh, what to do but also preferences around uh, preferences uh, of care, preferences of preferred place of death. And some of those conversations are just initiated, they could uh, even kind of rank it. So if the, the preferred place would be home, if a London ambulance gets that call, they would know that they would do their best to keep them at home and see what other services they could call like district nurses or palliative care or GP out of hours to try and support that person to stay at home. If it's not possible and it's written down that they wouldn't mind a hospice as well, if that would be the second choice, they could try and facilitate that the next day. It can be filled by anyone, but of course it's more immediate if someone has a terminal diagnosis and it's, I guess, in a way a little easier to, to think about what's important to them at that time.
1: What we've actually found also within the hematologic patients is that um, even if they have cancers which are curable, but they're having quite toxic treatments, then Care is actually a good platform to then document things that could potentially go wrong. Obviously, if they could get neutropenic sepsis or something like that, you could then put that and you can flag it up. So then when someone does see them at home, then they know that's an emergency and they need to be able to refer them to the right people. You know. So the initial purpose of it was about end-of-life care, and to you know anyone who's in the last year of life should have a coordinate my care record if they live within the locality. However, I think there's many other uses for it. And I know that actually for patients with sickle cell, things like that, they actually have Coordinate my care records. Even again, they're not, it's not because it's, that's they've got a terminal diagnosis. It's because they've got an emergency care plan which is documented on
3: an online platform which is easily accessible. It's really helpful, isn't it? And I think from my point of view as a haematology clinician, one of the really helpful things from spending this last year working with the two of you has been learning those kind of things, so learning what resources actually are available on EPIC or or in the other electronic domains, learn how to use them, how to fill them in, just where, where to find them. And I think hopefully that can be something that, that we all across the department have, have learnt from you and, and are taking forwards.
0: And you said um, with haematology patients that sometimes it becomes can be quite difficult to recognise when that time is when they're dying. How do you support the teams in those type of situations and support the clinicians with those really, really difficult conversations with the patient?
1: Yeah,
2: I, different I, ways.
1: yeah absolutely. I think one of the things that we've been trying to instil or trying to change the culture in is that, yes, the patient might be having curative treatment, but what if things don't go the way that we're all hoping? What if, unfortunately, things don't, you know, the... Either it's the cancer isn't actually treatable as we initially thought it was, or some of these treatments have unfortunately led to some complications that we can't reverse. And so what we've been trying to do is what we call parallel planning. So, okay, yes, you're on a treatment which hopefully will work and cure you of your cancer. However, if it doesn't work, then these are the other things that we think you should be thinking about. But to be honest, when we go to see these patients, it's literally just opening a dialogue. We just, I think there's something about having a different team come in as well because obviously the hematology teams are. Specialist, they have that type of knowledge. It, it, you know, it, the patients look up to that, and any plans that are made regarding their hematological te- treatments are discussed with the hematology team. However, as you probably know, when a nurse goes in or another team goes in after that conversation, then a lot of other questions are asked and the conversation's opened up a bit more. Interesting. Um, <laughs> so all we do is simply is to go and say, how are you? I know that you've just had a conversation with this doctor. Is there anything that you'd want to talk about after that? And they just open up.
3: They do. That's fascinating, Johanna. I, I I've just finished a month on the wards and I, I got a message uh, yesterday from one of the nurses about, about a patient. He said, you may not have known that the patient was suffering from these, uh, these symptoms because... Uh, she just told me that she didn't want to tell the doctors because she didn't want to bother them. And I thought that was just fascinating that someone could be really struggling there on the ward with symptoms and exactly as you just described, didn't want didn't to tell me, even though I hope I'm fairly approachable, but they might tell someone else and that, that, that's quite interesting.
0: Especially with all of the information that you give when you go in and they start a big cycle of treatment. Someone then just going in afterwards and saying, how are you with all of that, it would be really important.
1: Yeah, would you would you do those conversations very much in the beginning few days, or would it be maybe going a couple of weeks later when they've got a bit more headspace to to think about these newer things?
2: Well, I think we have done in different ways. When before COVID, of course, we went on the ward rounds and we were there. So when some of the conversations happened, we stayed afterwards and and spoke to them then there and then, and came back almost every day just to see how they how they were. During COVID, of course, we couldn't be there. So it's just about liaising with the consultants or the registrars to let us know, are there any patients that you want us to see together or or separately, if possible? It was kind of adapting, really. Usually, I think it does work well once once that conversation has been had, then sometimes it's so overwhelming for that person Mm -hmm. to listen that just having a little bit of time to make sense of things with us there, just listening, I think it's really helpful but also a few days after when they've had a little bit more time to process.
3: I wonder if I could ask you both a question of your perception of how we're working in haematology here. I think there's a perception amongst some other clinical groups that haematologists sometimes don't know when to stop, and they're being accused of continuing to treat people right up to their to their last breath. And I hope that culture is changing, and I certainly, certainly speaking from a personal level, hope that that's not how I practice. But I'd be interested in your perspective, having spent the year working with us, whether you think we're we're getting things broadly right or whether we've got a lot still to advance in that way.
1: One of the things I was just gonna say which relates to this is I think what's key to how we've been working is like the relationship between us and the, the hematology team and having those key contacts and those people who are really passionate about you know, ensuring that we're doing exactly the right thing for the patient. And during my training, I did haematology at one point, and even then, looking back and where we are in, in the last year, it, it is astonishing how quickly patients can deteriorate and how things can change for them, whereas you know, the intent is to keep treating them because you want to do good. You either want to cure the patient or you want to make sure their symptoms are better. What I've really learned is that how the haematologists care so much about the patient that none of these decisions are taken lightly and it's always a collaborative approach. If it's in the MDT setting where you're talking amongst your peers, with the nurses on the wards or with us, I think that's just been really a nice relationship, a nice way of working where we're all on the same page. But also then those discussions and those decisions are then offered to the patient rather than it being, this is the way it is. What I've noticed is that it's always then discussed with them and their families. So we have a better understanding of what's important to them as well.
2: For me, I think in, in two ways, the perception, yes, probably I had that perception to start with having come from oncology, but also there's something else that we do in our team, which is we offer informal debriefs to, to staff following a traumatic event or in oncology, it's quite ingrained in in their culture now to have once weekly coffee and ketchup. And sometimes when we held some of these sessions in hematology, there was a lot of um, stress, I think, sometimes from, from the nurses that sometimes still get that perception. And our role in a way that I found myself doing quite a lot was supporting them to understand that sometimes those conversations have been had and trying to improve the communication between some of the junior nurses and the doctors to understand why the treatments are there, it's kind of to the end, and that's kind of what they have in mind. I definitely experienced, I've, I've learned quite a lot in the last year to, and just listening on, on, on the ward rounds of the thought processes of kind of looking at all the patients and what's going on and thinking well ahead, and this is what we, we wanted uh, to do, thinking months ahead, let's, we need to, to prepare and make these, fas- these patients feel safe and secure and start having this conversation. So it's been quite good, yeah.
3: I think one of the challenges is when you, well, you've, you've highlighted, we often talk about this as a potentially curable or a curable malignancy. We're always getting new treatments, obviously even during the course of this year that you've worked with us, cellular therapy, CAR T-cell therapy has really become much more accessible and I spend well about a third of my time in the clinical research facility helping develop other new treatments, new, new, new drug treatments and that's an interesting balance. It's very exciting when we get a new treatment but again knowing when to stop and when it may not be appropriate just because there's a new therapy why it may not be appropriate to go and go and reach for that new therapy, whether that's in a trial or, or now a licensed product or something. It's, it's, it's a bit of a balance.
1: So is the hope from your team that like the lymphoma team, other haematologists start embedding this like parallel planning with, with all patients? Yeah, so again, as a quality improvement team, what we're trying to do is we're trying to change culture from within a department and hopefully that culture is then instilled through the senior nurses and then through the senior doctors to then whoever comes around because we know how many people <laughs> switch roles and rotate through UCRH like it's, it's it's a lot of new staff con- continuously coming through so yes i guess the plan is trying to change culture from within and then be able to support the team maybe remotely later on down the line but at least from what we understand so far for the, at least for the next year we'll still be supporting the hematology teams hopefully we'll get an opportunity to work not just with the lymphoma teams but also within the other inpatient and possibly outpatient teams as well.
0: I think it'd be really important for the nurses to know a little bit because we do we hear lots from the um, Transformative Life Care team and, and but even things that I've heard today the nurses would really appreciate knowing a little bit more.
3: I wonder whether there's any reflection we should do on how COVID is changing things or has changed things. You know, Lina, you mentioned how obviously on a practical level it's changed how we work in terms of smaller teams going around doing a ward round trying to avoid spreading infections, whether that's COVID or other. I had an interesting discussion with a patient's family on ITU last night, a a very elderly lymphoma patient, very unwell on ITU with a long list of comorbidities who were very reluctant to have a not-for-resuscitation discussion. It was... They seemed quite shocked that I would be having that discussion with them. And I maybe I was naive. I kind of thought that after everything it's a country we've gone through with COVID, that perhaps that kind of thing would be higher up in people's consciousness. And I was maybe slightly surprised that it wasn't.
0: That conversation is sometimes such a shock and it's really difficult.
2: I think sometimes how it's portrayed, and I think there's recess, it's been quite recess quite a lot decisions, of, yeah.
3: recess discussions, yeah, is mean, a whole in topic, the media. isn't it, in itself? Yeah. But.
0: Yeah, the media has a big impact on things like that. And that can it be does, really difficult, yeah. doesn't it?
3: Like sort of films or things where someone comes back to life after a few rounds of CPR and then you have to spend a long time discussing how, you know, actually in reality that doesn't happen very often. And in the context of someone who's already very ill, who has a cardiac arrest, the chance of them coming back to a normal life, if at all, is very, very small. And you yeah, have to really break that down. Yeah.
0: Well, that's why things like Coordinate My Care and Advanced Care Planning are great, because you've already kind of had conversations around that in a way where you're not very unwell with families that are very emotional and very stressed.
1: Absolutely. That's the whole thing about having an Advanced Care Plan is that you hopefully have that conversation when someone has the capacity to talk about these really major issues. And if you have that documented, yes, it. I mean... It's a guide to the decision-making later on down the line when they can't be involved in those conversations. But hopefully that then takes away some of that pressure from the family whenever we approach them. Yes, we approach them to say these are the, deci- these are the things that we're thinking about and these are some of the decisions that we're making. But sometimes families feel when we start talking about it that we're asking their permission for something that it, that's not necessarily the case. But having an advanced care plan where it's documented at least means that those conversations have been had at some point And we know what the patient actually wanted. And you were talking about compassionate communication
2: as an important part of you know your program. And-
1: um, I think it's...
2: Uh, He's got a PhD just published in communication, so I'll let oh, him answer really? that. i am just written about ninety thousand words. To... We'll just sum it up in ten. So That's I thought fine. I'll let him talk about this.
3: <laughs> um, oh gosh, where to start? Um, <laughs> All right, we need another I... session. <laughs>
2: yeah,
1: I think. Uh, I... Things are already changing in medicine anyway. I think before we were very much hierarchical and paternalistic, so it's very much a decision is made by the doctors and then it's told to the patient and that was that's just the way it was. Whereas now we're much more about more um, patient, patient-centred care, much more about shared decision making, having those conversations with patients, but understanding what's important to them and those important to them and then trying to marry it up to what we are thinking about as well. How often I just start having conversations with patients and they will just reveal things like, actually, I would never be w- wanting CPR if my heart's ever stopped or anything like that because I don't think that's something I'd ever want. But nobody's ever asked them that question. But when you just start having general conversations, it's something that might, they might be open to talking about, whereas a doctor might be really scared about opening up that conversation to begin with if that's the only part of their agenda in that conversation. I think... First of all, just having open conversations can open up some nice dialogue with patients and they can probably reveal things anyway. We also have to understand that a lot of these kind of decisions, some of them are medical decisions that we make, and again, like I said earlier, sometimes we put the focus back on the family or those, and I think it's a bit unfair. I think we just have to communicate it really carefully in saying, you know, these are the decisions we've made, what do you think about it? Or we're just telling you, this is where we are, what do you think? And kind of having a bit of a, trying to collaborate in those kind of decisions.
0: Rather than asking them to make a decision.
1: Absolutely. It's really, really hard. Um, And you can be the best at doing that and still what you think you've said, they might have perceived it to be completely different. So what I always try and do is ask them at the end of the conversation, so can you just either summarise or just tell me what you think I've just said and what that means to you? And then hopefully that gives a bit of an idea. Again, as Will touched upon earlier, it's just sometimes when you see a doctor or someone who's looking after you, patients very much want to give us the positives. They don't, they're, they're fearful that we might stop treatments. You know, sometimes they can pick up if we're a bit scared about talking about certain things as well. So yeah, just asking them those kind of simple things, how are you, all of that kind of stuff, really does work. I know it doesn't sound like very technical, but it 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 is really powerful, I I think.
0: No, that's really important to take like as like a take home message. You don't Definitely. have to say anything very profound or or anything else, it's just ask them what's going on for them and they might tell you
2: everything else. Yeah. How are you feeling after that conversation and then
1: Absolutely. The other thing is that these conversations don't all have to be done in one go. You know, these are bits that you can talk about later and many people might not be open to having conversations because it might not be relevant to how they are at that moment. Fair enough. You can just come back to it at a later point or might be a different person who has that conversation later down the line.
3: And I guess from my side, just to say thank you to both of you working with us this year. I think it's been really educational, informative, helpful and and dare I say fun uh, to to, to work alongside uh, you. I think uh, it's a really valuable service and really helpful to our patients but but to us as well. Well, Thanks
1: for having us.